From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So I'm uh, your usual host, John Plotz, and sitting across from me today in our cozy little coffin is the celebrated writer and scholar Sharon Marcus, who is a professor of English at Columbia and founding editor of Public Books. She's got wonderful earlier books of cultural history, which include Apartment Stories and Between Women. And now she's written a book that, among other things, uncovers the 19th century roots of a very 21st century concept, celebrity. So, Sharon, hi. Hi. It's great to have you here. So as our conversation evolves, we are going to follow the, um, recall this book, tradition of resurrecting an older work that has something to say about how our topic, celebrity, operates. And I see that older work sitting in Sharon's lap right now. But uh, we're going to begin by talking about Sharon's wonderful new book from Princeton University Press, which is called The Drama of Celebrity. So, Sharon, you know, welcome. Just can you start by telling us a little bit about the book? Absolutely. The drama of celebrity provides a new history and a new theory of celebrity culture. And the history takes us back to the 19th century. And one of the claims I'm making is that modern celebrity begins not with Hollywood, certainly not with the Internet, but with 19th century theater and the ways that live theatrical performances and stars mingled with new technologies of that time, Mm -hmm. which are still with us. Mm -hmm. The mass press, which Mm -hmm. has now migrated to inside our phones. Yes. The photograph, which has now migrated to inside Inside our our phones. phones, The telegraph, which arguably has migrated (laughs) inside our phones, although technically not. And um, also... That would be a great app, actually, to send a telegraph (laughs) app with like a a little Western Union guy could show up. And also the the new ability in the 19th century of people to literally travel around the world via steamship and railway. So steamships would carry them across the ocean and railways would take them into the nooks and crannies of the countries they visited. There have been famous people since time began. There have been famous people since somebody in one village said, hey, did you hear what the guy in the other village did at the Mm -hmm. latest stone-throwing festival? But the way that modern celebrity takes form with ordinary people making ordinary people famous rather than people like Julius Caesar putting statues of himself everywhere Mm -hmm. is really a 19th century phenomenon. It it starts earlier with print culture, but it's really only in the 19th century that you have – hundreds of thousands of people buying morning and evening editions of newspapers daily, that you have the ability to look at photographs when you walk down a street and see photographs of famous people in almost every store window. Photographs of famous people used to be sold in tobacconist shops, at news vendors, at pretty much any store that wanted to make a quick penny. So can I just ask you more, Sharon, about the word famous and the word celebrity? Mm -hmm. It sounds like celebrity has a different, it casts it into a different level than just fame. So traditionally, in the last century, Mm -hmm. fame is a more positive term. Celebrity is a more negative term. Fame connotes something lasting that you earn through worthy deeds. Celebrity, something more ephemeral that Uh, may be based on nothing. Uh It's ironic because... In, at its origins, the word fame comes from fama or rumor. Yeah. So originally, fame referred to the ephemeral, cheap, tawdry celebrity that we now contrast yeah, yeah, to great. fame today. Yeah. I would also say that fame refers to lasting renown, renown that survives the death of the person. So celebrity often is what you have while you're alive and evokes a real interest in the private life Mm. of the public person. Mm -hmm. Fame 
also can include that, but fame tends to have a more respectable patina around it. So this is someone who, you know, over the centuries, we've continued to be interested in, and therefore they are famous. But I think in the present, living people can be called famous. Famous, It really is a term that's reserved more for those who people think deserve to be talked about and admired. So Einstein is famous. Kim Kardashian's a celebrity. So... So I think what I was thinking of, but this really helps me, I was thinking that you were making a distinction where celebrity was the famous for being famous category, but it's not. No, I completely disagree with that whole idea. And I actually don't truck with the distinction between celebrity and fame. So that distinction Mm. I've just been describing, I think is, am I allowed to say bullshit on your podcast? Yeah, you are. You're allowed to say a lot of things on our podcast. I think it's basically a kind of sociological, you know, way of assigning status and distinction. So uh-huh. men are famous, women well, are Well, that was going to be my second question was whether Scientists it's gendered all the way. Scientists are famous. I say Even athletes, athletes. can be famous, oh. but except, you know, maybe right. A-Rod because he's gone out with too many female performers. But, uh-huh. you know, performers are celebrities. So we don't take performance that seriously. Yeah. So and and also athletics I think, is an interesting one because it has record books and you could mm-hmm. say oh the enduring like I was just watching the World Series and they always trot out the great names and they do say you know the famous pitchers of the past that's really yeah. interesting yeah. fame is just a way of conferring higher status yeah, and right. so any group that enjoys higher status in our society men for example, will be more likely to be called famous. famous. And I would also say activities that are engaged in primarily Mm -hmm. by dominant groups, activities that are followed Mm -hmm. in large part by dominant groups, those tend to get called famous. And anything that involves, you know, young girls and teenage girls admiring right. slightly older women in their 20s, that's going to be dismissed just as famous slowly. only for being famous. I mean, what has Kim Kardashian done? She just managed to have a TV show that ran for 14 seasons, yeah. found a clothing line, basically invent the contemporary right. use of social media. But she must just be an idiot. Yeah. So it's actually not a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction that has an invidious difference yes. in it that you're trying to call out. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. Okay, cool. So that's the history. So the, the theory. So, yeah. you know, I'm an academic, so my job is to say how what I'm saying is different from what other people have said. And yeah. I'll be honest, for a while I didn't know that I had anything radically different to say about how celebrity worked. But when I had been researching for a very long time, you know, about mm. eight years, and I sat back and I thought the time has really come to ask myself what – Of all this history and the commonalities I found between the 19th century and the present, what does that say about how celebrity works? And and do do I view that differently from others? So I went back yet again and looked at the key text. And I thought, well, here's the thing. All of these studies tend to argue that only one group is really responsible for making someone Mm -hmm. into a celebrity and defining what their celebrity means. In many cases, especially in academic studies, that group is some version of the media. That Mm -hmm. might be the press. It might be the publicity machine. It might be what Adorno called the culture industry. And the the key text here actually is the source of that famous famous only for being famous Mm. quote that you 
brought out before, and that's Daniel Burstyn's The Image. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. From the 1950s. And what he argued there is that celebrity is just a creation of the media. He's really uh-huh. looking at a conglomeration of like press agents, publicists, jer- cheap journalists, not, uh-huh. you know, investigative reporters, but cheap journalists, gossip columnists, and people who work in Hollywood and right. the record industry. And he says there's there's nothing to any of these celebrities. They're just illusions created by this media machine. And right. we, the American public, have lost the ability to pierce the illusion. Yeah. So, okay, that was one yeah. theory. The media is creating these puppets. You know, the media are the puppeteers. Right. So it's the, the celebrities pu- it's are the puppet the puppets, master puppets, argument. Right. Yeah. And we, the public, are a bunch of idiotic pawns who just believe everything that's foisted yeah. on us. That was one theory. And I'm really only slightly caricaturing that theory. Yeah. That, that really yeah. is, I think, what people thought. And, you know, it was the 1940s and 50s. They were worried about fascism, the rise of yeah. the cult of personality, the way that all of these technologies yeah. like radio and film had helped to promote fascism. Totally. And they had plenty of reason, as we continue to have, to worry that people were not sufficiently critical of yeah. celebrities. Totally. And just can I say also the the that, you know, I study science fiction and the anti-communism of that period is often really kind of an anti-culture industry is also, oh, in other words, the fear of like the invasion of the body snatchers mm, right, version is that that actually is one way. You know, it's it, it's located, at, you know, transparently as an allegory about communism, but it has a same, it has a flavor of the same thing. Yes, so. and that is interesting because yeah. there's also this implication, and Adorno says this explicitly in one of his writings on the culture industry, that celebrities are all homogenized, that they they're mm-hmm. just all cut from the same cloth, and they're all iterations of the same type, when in fact, there's so much emphasis placed both in celebrity personae and in fandom on the distinctions between celebrities. Mm -hmm. And so many celebrities present themselves as defiant and nonconformist. Right. The kind of in reaction to that theory Jackie, scholars like Jackie Stacy and Henry Jenkins said, well, let's look at this public that's supposedly so stupid Mm -hmm. and see what they actually are doing when they engage in fandom. And what they both found and scholars since have found is that fans, in fact, can be very critical. They engage in lots of acts of evaluation. They form communities. They create their own art. They're quite active. And so that really laid to rest the notion of the passive fan and the passive public, but had as its blind spot, the sense that it's only fans who create celebrity. Right. So we have one theory that says it's just the media creating celebrity. And of course, media is a very yeah. complex entity. We had another that said it's just the public that's yeah. creating the celebrity. And Sharon, period-wise, when would you place that? Because I feel like... 80s. Okay. 80s and 90s. And do you have a thought about the 80s and 90s as like an interesting time when that would arise or Reagan era, I guess? It seems like an odd kind of wishful mm-hmm. theory for the Reagan era, if you yeah. ask me. But it could have been an attempt to inject We seem to into... be narcotized. We're just right. sitting at the sofa, but we're really <laughs> but we doing did, something. We did, in fact, just elect a celebrity yeah. president, right. although Reagan had, uh, you know, compared to our current oh, president, Reagan had a lot of political experience that, you know, Trump completely lacked. But I think there was a need to... <laughs> Busting unions since 1947, <laughs> yes. Right. Um, um, and, and, you know, leading the charge against communists. Yes, But he'd been governor of California. Sure, yeah. I think there might have been a wish to bring into being through the active intellection and yeah. active kind of uh, anarchic public 
And of course, in uh-huh. response to, you know, alongside Reagan, we have punk, we have all these forms right. of subculture that do place a lot of emphasis on the yeah. fan and even break down some of the fan rock star totally. distinction. Yeah. And if you think of the 80s, you think about the Birmingham School and you think about people like Dip sure. Hebditch talking about subculture as style. Right? And so absolutely, that yeah. this is coming out of Stuart Hall and the, Bur- yeah. you know, the Birmingham School yeah. without without any. I mean, that's that's a clear line. And so they're rethinking the Adorno question. They, they're rethinking Adorno in light of wanting to have a more invigorated sense of the public and of community. Okay. And then I would say alongside all of these, there's always been a folk theory of celebrity, which says it's Mm. stars who make themselves. And no one in academia ever gives that any credence, but it is Mm -hmm. an important vernacular theory of celebrity. So... When and I, arguably, you wouldn't like stars if you didn't think they made themselves, right? I mean, people have to believe that at some level, right? Depends that, on the kind of fan you are. Interesting. So what I realized about these theories is that all of them are right, which is why all of them are wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, the, there is an active culture industry that's working very hard to create stars. And yes, fans are deciding whether or not they're going to take up those invitations and build them and turn would-be stars into actual stars. And I believe that most stars actually have a lot of qualities that help to make them stars and both talent and whatever it is they Mm -hmm. do, whether that's hitting a ball or singing a song. But also, usually, the biggest stars have a really canny grasp of how celebrity itself works Mm -hmm. and an ability to Mm -hmm. manage themselves and the Mm -hmm. public and the media. Mm -hmm. But that none of these groups has the sole power to create a star. And it's actually their interactions Mm -hmm. that can constitute celebrity culture. So that's the theory. The theory is that if we want to picture how celebrity culture works, it's not one point that's this monolithic planet, like celebrity Megatron sort of making everything happen. It's a triangle, a kind of constellation with media at one point, publics at another, and celebrities at another. And it's their attempts to work with each other, their attempts to control mm-hmm. each other, their conflicts with each other, all of those complicated inter- and very unpredictable interactions are what creates celebrity culture. So, Sharon, one of the things I most loved about your book was, although you pointedly distanced yourself from a from the Jenkins model of, like, fandom as creating celebrity, you're really interested in fans. And, mm. like, the words, I mean, some of the words you used that I really liked, you talked about celebration and admiration and appreciation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that actual scrapbook research sure. you did? It's totally sure. fascinating. So I would say the book is not a defense of celebrity and fandom, but it is, you know, wherever possible, I think it's good to push back against received wisdom. And both in reading the scholarship and talking to people about the book, it was really clear to me that people tend to think celebrities don't do anything to deserve their fame Mm -hmm. and that fans are dumb and don't (laughs) think very carefully about the people that they are fans of. And, you know, if I were focusing on the present, I would have done more sociological research, but I was really interested in the 19th century. Also, I think people tend to think that the crazy things fans do today, like stalk people or write effusive fan mail or stand around and try to get someone to sign their theater program is all very new and recent. So 
in order to write the book, I felt it was really important to try to understand the fans of the past. And yeah. short of holding a seance, I wasn't going to be able to interview them. No. So I kept thinking, well, what would be some source that would help mm-hmm. me understand them? And I... In one of those sort of research moments of serendipity, I was just looking up Sarah Bernhardt in an Ohio State University catalog, and it said that there was a theatrical album about her. So I contacted the librarian, and I said, and she said, oh, well, you know, it's not an album only about Sarah Bernhardt. There are actually other actresses in it. I said, well, that's even more interesting Mm -hmm. because then I can see how people depicted Sarah Bernhardt in the scrapbook relative to these other actresses. And I said, do you have more of those albums? And the librarian and said, oh, we have about 100 of them that we've yeah. never cataloged. Yeah. said, well, I could help you with yeah. <laughs> cataloging them. I'd love to look at them. So I spent a month in Columbus, Ohio, at the Lee and Lawrence Theater Institute Library looking at scrapbooks from the mostly from the 1880s through mm-hmm. the 1910s. It was a real craze. Mark Twain, in fact, patented a, a blank scrapbook <laughs> because he recognized... <laughs> of course, what of didn't course, Mark Twain well, scrapbook? And of yeah, course, but, as a celebrity, yeah, yeah, yeah. he understood yeah, that yeah. people were collecting all these clippings and photographs. And around the 1890s, new technologies enabled periodicals to incorporate much higher quality photographs. And it's so interesting to look at those theater magazines from the 1890s because they actually adopt layouts that look like scrapbook pages. So the theater magazines look like scrapbooks. The scrapbooks look like theater magazines. And are they meant to lend themselves to scrapbooking? Like, do they are they inviting cutout? They Uh show. Is that like a centerfold or something? No, what they would tend to do was two things really um, stood out to me. One was that they would reproduce stills of people, you know, headshots in frames. Yeah. In these very... Uh uh, So the frames are clearly graphic ornaments. They're not meant to look like real frames. They're meant to look like something we put in the magazine, but they instruct you to cut the picture out and put it in your scrapbook. And they also really start trying to reproduce photographs that capture the the liveliness of performers. Yeah. So they, they're moving beyond the early stages of photography where people had to stand still for yeah. many seconds or even minutes yeah. for the exposure to happen. And now there's, there's more of an ability to capture people holding emotion. And so yeah. there's pictures of people ice skating and in the middle of executing a dance. And yeah. you start to really feel how vibrant these stage performances were, in some ways possibly even more vibrant yeah. than certainly early cinema, and to understand why people would feel so passionately enthusiastic about these theatrical performers who otherwise I think we tend to picture as wooden and exaggerated and stiff. They weren't like that at all. These were intensely physical performers. I don't think these scrapbooks were particularly private. Some of them seem to be sort of collaborative, you know, uh-huh. like two sisters might right. make a scrapbook together. There was nothing in uh, – some of them, a couple of them had an aura of illicitness about mm-hmm. them or just mania that seemed mm. a little private. But most of them seem like something that you would show to a friend. And, in fact, they come out of the keepsake books of the 1840s and 50s, which mm-hmm. were social. You would put – Poems yeah, I was thinking and about pictures those. Yeah. And your keepsake right. album and put it on the table in the drawing room and then show yes. to guests to, you know, to talk about. I remember them from Jane Austen novels. Yes. yes. But what's different today is that by putting something online, you make it potentially available to anyone Anybody. in the world. Of yeah. course, as we know, the more people did that, the more things, I mean, many things in the web are, are now hiding in plain sight because yeah. there's so much up there that how would we find it unless we looked for yeah. it? But the ability to, so I would say, the scrapbooks were 
were not private, but you would only share them with people you knew. Once you put things up online, you're sharing them with strangers. Yeah. That's truly public. Okay. So, Sharon, so we've now covered, we've done an amazing job talking about the 19th century and connected it to the present, but the book you brought in is actually in between. It's from the Hollywood era celebrity. So do you want to tell us about this 1977 memoir that you have? So the book I brought is Haywire by Brooke Habert, published in 1977. And there's which, no copy in the Brandeis Library, but I bet there what? are I bet there what? are millions of copies <laughs> elsewhere. But yeah. It actually was a bestseller for 16 weeks when it was published in 1977, yeah. but then went out of print and had to be reissued in 2011. Hmm. Which doesn't surprise me because it, this is a memoir written by Brooke Hayward, who was the daughter of Leland Hayward, who basically invented the idea of the movie agent and mm-hmm. had an amazing business with all the top stars in his portfolio and then sold that business to MCA. So when Jules Stein created MCA, he didn't create it out of nothing. He bought out Leland Hayward's mm-hmm. agency. And mm-hmm. like Howard Hughes, Leland Hayward was very interested in aviation. So if you if you think back to the 1920s and the opening up of the talkies mm-hmm. and the opening up of aviation as well, it's mm-hmm. a moment like the 1990s where there's a whole bunch of new technologies mm-hmm. and there are some people who are very quick to monetize them. And turn you know realize there are new markets here. Yes, and Leland Poor Hayward Buster was, Keaton. Yes, <laughs> yes, and Leland Hayward was one of these. And yes. so what he did as soon as the talkie started, he had started out as a theatrical press agent. Uh-huh. And what he did was he realized that Hollywood was going to need scripts and actors who could speak. And yes. So he was one of the key people shuttling people from Broadway where uh-huh. he was already working yeah. to Hollywood. Yeah. He. Eventually married one of his clients, Margaret Sullivan, who started out in the theater yes. and then made some movies in the 1930s and 40s. Yes. But when she married Leland Hayward, they had in quick succession three children. And Margaret Sullivan was always torn not only between the theater, which she found more authentic. And, of course, once Hollywood mm-hmm. came into play, the theater could start then to becomes seem more retrospectively right? becomes authentic. Before right? that, it yeah. seemed like trash. Yeah. And um, she was torn both between Hollywood and theater, but more importantly, she was torn between devoting herself to family life and having a career as an actor. Mm-hmm. She was what I would call a reluctant celebrity. So mm-hmm. she, uh, um, Brooke Hayward, in writing about her, so Brooke Hayward writes in 1977 a memoir about her family, her mother, her father, and her siblings called Haywire. But then she moves back in time. And she recreates the idyllic years of their early family life. Mm -hmm. And those idyllic years on a personal level also coincide with her father and mother at the height of Mm -hmm. their careers Mm -hmm. and being part of this Hollywood world. But her mother was really committed to not being a big star. One of the stories that she tells early on about her mother is her mother being asked for an autograph and her mother pretending she's not even Margaret Sullivan. And you know, her daughters are fascinated, like, you just lied. You said you weren't who you were, and you tell us not to lie. And she says, well, I want to explain something to you. There are people who think that if they, that movie stars are special, and that if they get me to sign my name on a piece of paper, it makes them special. But movie stars aren't special. In fact, Margaret Sullivan, this is what Margaret Sullivan says, and Margaret Sullivan seemed in some ways to subscribe to the 
Adorno Burstyn school of thought. She's uh-huh. like Hollywood is an illusion. They just made us. And they the life, us. the life of mm-hmm. a no, not make or unmake, but Hollywood is an illusion. It's fake. It's I see. Phony. Uh-huh. And the life of a celebrity isn't real. And yeah. I want to be a real mother to you children, and I want you to have a real life. I see. And so she actually moves them out of Hollywood to Connecticut to a farm. And that's when the marriage starts to fall apart because her husband has absolutely no desire to not be in the midst. He doesn't like Los Angeles that much, but he has to be in the midst of all the where the action is. Well, anyway, Sharon, you've totally persuaded me. The book the book sounds amazing. And um, actually, that probably makes this a good time to pivot to um, the section that we call recallable books, where we talk about other books that we're not really going to go into in the show, but that relate, you know, if you like. What mm-hmm. we've been discussing today, you will also like. So you've got a contemporaneous well, recommendation. Well, I have two. I have oh, two okay, recommendations great. that yeah. are connected. So if we're thinking about the 1970s and early 1980s as a moment where people start thinking about celebrity differently, I would say yeah. that with the demise of the Hollywood system, which really started the to, studio system, right? That with the yep. demise of the Hollywood studio system, which started to crumble in the 50s and yep. really collapsed in the 60s, yep. and, and Brooke Hayward is looking back elegiacally yep. at a moment that is long gone by yep. the time she's writing in 1977. What also starts to become, I think, quite popular is the expose of the celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so, my first recommendation is another book published around the same time as Haywire, Mommy Dearest oh by Christina God. Crawford. Yes, which I've never read. I'm Christina Crawford's almost yeah. exactly the same age as Brooke Hayward. Yeah. Brooke Hayward mentions Christina Crawford's birthday parties as being the most elaborate and extravagant of yes. any of those she attended in uh-huh. Hollywood. And, you know, Brooke Hayward has some critical things to say about her parents, but basically they were good parents and she adores them. And yeah. though she says, you know, the book has a kind of F. Scott Fitzgerald cast at the end, she says, well, we were just very careless with all the riches Uh bestowed on us, not just with other people, but with ourselves. There's no sense in which she's denouncing her parents as bad parents, whereas Christina Crawford was and her her brother were just woefully abused by John Crawford. It was an open secret in Hollywood for a long time. And Christina Crawford writes a book exposing that. But what both books share is they frequently refer to this idea of celebrity as an illusion and a fantasy that fans buy into. And Mm -hmm. so they really are echoing some of the ideas that were quite common in academia as well in this more popular idiom. And then the the other book I would recommend is one that I think borrowed a lot from some of the techniques Brooke Hayward uses in Haywire, and that's Edie. An American, mm. an American biography, I mm-hmm. think, is the subtitle yeah. by Gene Stein and George Plimpton, yeah. which was constructed out of interviews. Now, Brooke Hayward doesn't rely entirely on yeah. interviews. She has a very strong narrative voice, but she did interview Fondas and Mankiewicz's and other friends of yeah. her parents and Jimmy Stewart, and she intersperses her prose with snippets of these famous people. Yeah. So this sense in which both you know books that are exposing the underbelly of celebrity are also trafficking in our interest in hearing the the authentic words of these celebrities. It's a fine line to walk, and all of these three books are walking it. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, when I was a freshman, I had a friend who was obsessed with Edie, and I actually participated in an art project of his <laughs> where we did a fake Edie. We invented a character, mm-hmm. and then we all were, like, I, I think my role, I think I played his father and his chauffeur, and we mm-hmm. had to give interviews about, mm-hmm. like, in a faux Edie style. So mm-hmm. that, that book mm-hmm. made a very strong yes. 18-year-old impression on me. That's great. So I'm actually going to plug for my recallable book, I'm actually going to probe uh, Margaret Talbot's book, The Entertainer. Do you know that? 
Everyone has been telling me to read it. it. I'll go out today and find a bookstore and buy it. It is super charming because he was a B actor his whole life. So tell us more who who he was. So it's about her father who was Lyle Talbot, born in 1902, and he kind of came up hardscrabble way through vaudeville and made his way onto the stage and made his way out to Hollywood. I can't even remember the improbable set of things that take him, I think, from Kansas to Hollywood. But he never quite has the breakout. He probably was featured in some film magazine and yet it, it, his career never took off. And yet they kind of had, what do they say in those English movies? It's a second-class citizen, first-class life. Like he did, they actually, the Talbots <laughs> kind so of did British. all right. Yeah, it's very <laughs> British. Um, the Talbots actually did all right in that in the second string of celebrity. So in a way, I was going to say it was different from the books you recommended because it's not pointing the finger at the fakery of Hollywood. But it actually, the logic, I think, is the same, which is Margaret is saying, Mar- I, I happen to know her, she's wonderful. But I think Margaret is saying, that they were kind of lucky to be out of the limelight. You know, had mm-hmm, they gone a little mm-hmm, bit fu- mm-hmm. further, their wings would have melted and they would have crashed. Mm-hmm. But instead, they managed to just kind of flap along on the voice in the voiceover level of Hollywood society. Right. Uh, I mean, I think it's a little, you know, who knows how true any of these beliefs are. I think it might be a little bit like, well... It's not so much that happy families are right. It's not so much happy families are all alike, and each unhappy family is unhappy yeah. in its own way. But unhappy families write memoirs, and happy yeah. families don't bother. Right. So, so Margaret is unusual in that she's writing a memoir out of like what went right, and mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a hard thing to do, right? Because mm-hmm. the the blow ups show up better than the successes, but well, they make for better yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a it's an utterly charming book. Um, well, uh, speaking of utterly charming, Sharon, thank you so much. Totally charming. Great to have right you here. back at you. Recall this book is hosted uh, regularly by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Music comes from a song by Eric Cheslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden. Website design and social media by Matthew Schratz. And we always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show... And who would not enjoy talking to Sharon Marcus? Please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, You may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like new and old media with Lisa Gittleman, uh, opiate addiction with Gina Torrigiano, post-industrial America with Chris Wally, and recent interviews with Shishen Yu, Zadie Smith, Samuel Delaney, and most recently with Mike Lee. So from all of us here, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.